Now, today we have a treat. Um, we uh, invited Bob Russell, who was the preacher of the Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, for 40 years, and since retiring has not really slowed down. He has retreats where he encourages young preachers, and he travels around and does things like today where he's going to come in and encourage us. Well, we had Bob come in last night, and he spent some time with our elders. Our elders gathered together, and Bob just shared a lot of wisdom, and it was, it was a gold mine. And then uh, I had the privilege of going out to eat with him and continuing. He just has a heart for the kingdom of God. And so I'm excited to introduce to you my new friend, Bob Russell. As he makes his way to the podium, would you give him a nice, warm, new hope welcome? Well, good morning. I have really enjoyed your worship today. You sang some of my favorite songs, and uh, I really like the emphasis that you have on Scripture. You are to be commended for that. I was very much impressed yesterday with your elders and leaders. There's a spirit of harmony and health and warmth among them. And uh, for Dave, your previous preacher, to pass the baton on to his son-in-law is a miracle. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't happen very often, and you're to be commended. But Rob and this staff, uh, just really talented guys. I was so impressed with Rob. He has a humble spirit, a teachable spirit, loves the Word of God, and he's going to continue to grow as, as a preacher. And I hear so many great things about his preaching, so you're blessed with the staff here and the health here. I hope you appreciate that. I feel like I'm beginning, though, today with one strike against me. I am from Kentucky and uh, <laughs> have one soul here. I, I, uh, Kentucky has a reputation for being kind of a backward state. I had somebody email a while back and said, you know, I didn't know how backward Kentucky was until I went to the zoo in Kentucky. He said, you go to other zoos, they've got the name of the animal in English, and then in parentheses, they've got the name of the animal in Latin. He said, you go to the zoo in Kentucky, they've got the name of the animal in English, and in parentheses, they have a recipe. <laughs> I want you to know that's not true. Uh, but even though I'm from Kentucky, I, uh, I hope you'll listen today on this Mission Sunday as we talk about the urgency of evangelism. Twice a year at our church, I would teach a class entitled, What We Believe. It was offered originally to indoctrinate new members in the basic convictions of the church. But often, people who were not yet Christian would take the class so that they could make an informed decision. One evening after a class entitled, What is Christianity All About? A college girl came forward and introduced me to a friend that she had brought with her. She said, I brought my friend in hopes that she would become a Christian the way I did a year ago, but she has some questions for you. Well, this girl asked me a question about evolution. I tried to answer that. She asked me a question about why God permits so much suffering. I tried to answer that. She asked me a question about what about people who have never heard about Jesus. And I could tell she was asking questions not because she had intellectual doubts. She was asking questions to delay a decision because her heart was not yet softened to the gospel. So I said to her, why don't you read a book by Lee Strobel entitled A Case for Christ? After you read that book, let's talk. She agreed. I then turned to the college girl who had brought her up, and tears were streaming down this girl's face, and she turned away in embarrassment and said, oh, I'm sorry. 
I just want her to become a Christian so badly that I can taste it. And I was convicted because I could not remember the last time I cared so much for somebody who was lost that I wept over them. What about you? When is the last time you cared for somebody in your circle of influence, somebody you really loved, but they are so totally lost that you wept about it, or you prayed for them, or you even invited them to come to church? In Romans, the ninth chapter, verse 2, the Apostle Paul said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. The Apostle Paul never lost his zeal for evangelism. He spent his whole life trying to fulfill the great commission of Christ to go into all the world and share the gospel. In 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, he said, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. So I want to talk with you today about the urgency of evangelism in light of a parable that Jesus tells in Luke, the 14th chapter, beginning with verse 16. This parable emphasizes the fact that the primary purpose of the church is evangelism. And it gives some helpful hints about how that can best be accomplished. This parable reminds us there is still a heaven and there is a hell and there is a hurry. And I really believe that in the future, hundreds of people could be saved. Hundreds of families kept together. Hundreds of young people kept out of some of the hell holes of this world. If just a few of us would come to embrace the challenge that Jesus teaches us about here. Luke 14, beginning with verse 16. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Let's stop there for a minute. I find it interesting that Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a banquet. How many of you in here have ever been in charge of a banquet? Several of you. Let me ask it another way. How many have ever fixed a Thanksgiving dinner? If you've been in charge of a big meal, you know there are two essential ingredients for it to be successful. You've got to have good food, but you also have to have a good time. I've been to banquets, there are formal banquets, and the food was pretty good, but the atmosphere is so stiff, I'd never want to go back. Good food, good time. Now, when Christians come together, it is a banquet. We have a good time. We enjoy each other's company. It is called in the Bible, koinonia, the fellowship of the saints. I think most people out there in the world have no idea how much fun some of you have when you come to church. Because the media stereotype of a Christian is a fun-hating legalist or a mean-spirited judge. So people in the world think of going to church as a boring experience or just fulfilling an obligation. We need to assure them, when we invite you to come to church, it is to a joyous supper. David said, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. One of the last things Jesus said to his disciples was, I say these things to you so that my joy might remain in you and your joy might be complete. So one of the characteristics of a great church is joy. One of the characteristics of a great church is they know how to laugh. Because regardless of what happens in the world out there, it is kooky. We still have this hope that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us. In Acts, the second chapter, we read 
that the believers broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Joy and intensity are not contradictory terms. They are complementary virtues. In fact, you know what? You get a group of people together who really believe the gospel at the heart of their being, and yet they enjoy each other's company. It becomes so contagious you can't keep people away. I remember a time in our church when our congregation got the laughing so hard I couldn't get them to stop. It was on a Sunday night when I was supposed to preach and I slept through the service. Now, there were some reasons I slept through the service. I had preached on Sunday morning three times and I had work to do in my Sunday night sermon. I had a funeral sermon to prepare the next day. So I stayed all afternoon in my office working on those two sermons and finally at 6.15 I was finished. Church began at 7 o'clock. But I thought to myself, I am so worn out. I am just exhausted. I'm going to lay down on the floor of my office and just rest. Well, I laid down, and I got groggy, and I thought, I'm going to sleep. That's all right. I always wake up in 10 minutes or so. I'll hear the people coming in, or my wife or somebody who cares will come in and wake me up. <laughs> well, the next thing I knew, I woke up, and I thought, I thought this was Sunday. This is Sunday. And I looked at my watch, and it said 735. Church began at 7 o'clock. I could hear the music next door. I said, what am I going to do? I raced in the restroom and I washed my face and I walked confidently into the auditorium like I'd been counseling the mayor or doing something important. <laughs> and the worship leader was just dragging the songs out, waiting for me to show up. And as soon as I walked in the door, he just cut it off. So nodded to me. I walked up toward the platform and I went by him. But I didn't know whether it was time for me to make announcements or time to preach. And I meant to say to him, where are we in the service? And I whispered, where am I? <laughs> he said, announcements, announcements. Well, you know how it is when you're all fogged up. I got up and looked out the church. I could not think of one thing that was going on in the church all week long. I just stood there for about 15 seconds. Finally, I said, folks, I got to be honest with you. I went to sleep in the office. I just woke up. <laughs> they laughed, so I could not get them settled down. The next morning, I came to my office, and there was a do not disturb sign on my door. <laughs> I opened up the door of my office, all my furniture was gone, and all that was in there was a little cot with a teddy bear sucking its thumb. <laughs> now, do you think that God was up in heaven scowling at us for being so sacrilegious as laughing so hard in church? I don't think so. God is our Heavenly Father. Let me ask you fathers, you mothers, when you hear your children laughing in the room next door, that's music to your ears. What you don't like to hear is bickering. And somehow that night, when we were laughing so hard, I think the Lord was smiling too. Because when we come together, it's a joyous banquet. But you've got to have more than just laughter to make a good banquet. You've got to have good food. Uh, Bob Jones is a preacher friend of mine. And he said when he was a teenage boy, he saw a circus tent in a field, and he wanted to go to the circus, but he didn't have any money. So he went around the side of the tent and sneaked under the flap to get in. And he said it was one of the biggest disappointments of his young life when he discovered it wasn't a circus, it was a revival meeting. <laughs> he said, I'll tell you a bigger disappointment than that. And that is to go to church expecting a revival meeting and find out it's just a circus. I've been to church services where there's a lot of frivolity, a lot of laughter and hilarity, but not much substance. And I go away disappointed and empty. If we're the kingdom of God, we've got to provide food for hungry spirits. 
if the suicide of Robin Williams, the comedian, or Anthony Bourdain, the entertainer, should say anything to us, it's everything that world have, there has to offer. All the entertainment, all the laughter, all the money, all the fame doesn't satisfy the hunger that's in the soul. Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And millions of people in our world have that hunger. They don't identify it as a spiritual hunger, but they're searching for something. And the Bible is called meat and milk and honey and bread and water for a thirsty soul. And you are so blessed in this church to have a preacher and a staff who believes the Bible. And they teach the Bible. And when you come to church, you're fed. And you don't go away hungry. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Who comes, whoever comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Have you ever gone to somebody's house and you thought they were going to feed you and they thought you ate before you came? About 7.30, you nudge your mate and say, I don't, I don't think they're going to feed us. I don't think they are either. About 8 o'clock, they say, would you like some popcorn? Yeah, we'd like some popcorn. <laughs> when you leave at 9.30, 10 o'clock, where do you go? White, not White Castle. Uh, <laughs> Wendy's, maybe. White Castle. Uh, not that hungry. Why? Because the body physically craves food. The same is true spiritually. People are hungry for the things of God. They may wander into your church. If all they hear is pop psychology, a little social action, a little joke, they'll go away saying, well, nice people, good speaker, let's try someplace else. But if they come in here and they hear the meat and the milk and the bread and the honey of the Word of God, They'll say, I feel like I've been to church, been fed, because man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We're, in, we're inviting people to a great banquet. Good time, good food. Well, let's go on in this 14th chapter of Luke. In spite of this elaborate banquet that the host had prepared, he was disappointed that some of them canceled out at the last minute. Verse 18, they all alike began to make excuses. Now, keep in mind that that day, they would send out an RSVP, we're going to have a banquet around the week of, and then when the, all the cattle were killed and the garden was harvested and the food was ready, they'd send out the second invitation and say, come on. But some people had responded, we'll be there, but when the second invitation came, they began to make excuses. And the first guy says, I can't come because I'm too busy. I just bought a field and I've got to go see it. I think this is an activity excuse. I don't think he bought this field sight unseen. I think he was in real estate. And I think he uh, wanted to go survey the ground, plot it out so he could resell it. You gotta, you gotta make hay when the sun shines. This is an activity excuse. You know what it's like? So many demands on your time, you just don't have time for church today. I mean, overtime on your job, and your kids' travel team, and physical exercise, and your golf game, and elderly parents to provide for, shopping and taxi service for your kids, and lawns to be mowed, and dogs to be walked. I don't have time. I invited a high school principal within a stone's throw of our church to come to service. He said, well, I'd like to, but you know where I am on Sunday morning? I'm right here in this office with 2,000 kids and 300 administrators and teachers. This is a 10-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week job. 
I can't come, I'm too busy. We can sympathize with him because life for most of us is lived at such a hectic pace the psychologists rank fatigue and time pressure as the second most frequent cause of depression among adults. But the Bible says, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is holy unto God. And we function better when we stop, change of pace, rest, and worship. The world sits around and they scratch their head. They can't understand why Truett Cathy of Chick-fil-A and David Green of Hobby Lobby can close on Sunday, and yet make just as much profit, and their employees a lot happier than those who are open seven days a week. But, if you're like this guy in the parable, I can't come because I bought this field that it needs developing right now. Then in verse 19, the second man says, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. First guy has an activity excuse. This guy has a novelty excuse. You know what it's like when you buy something new. You got a new motorcycle. You got a new condo. You got a new fishing boat. You, you got new tickets to the Colts game. And you just can't make it to church because they play early. Something. Well, this guy had five yoke of oxen. That's a significant number. He couldn't wait to see how they work paired together. You know, the church faces some pretty stiff competition from the entertainment and the activity of this world. Uh, people, they have so many exciting things to do with all the technology and all the advances in travel. I was in church several months ago and there was a mother sitting in front of me with two grade school boys. You know what those grade school boys did the entire hour? One was on his iPhone and the other was on his iPad and they played video games the entire hour. Well, the mother didn't care. She didn't have to discipline them. She could pay attention. But the church looks pretty boring when you can play Angry Birds on your phone. And there's so much entertainment that people say, I can't come because it's not as exciting as some other things. I think the church makes a mistake when we try to compete with the entertainment of the world. And some of us do. We'll say, hey, you can't miss this service. It is going to be awesome. The worship leader is going to repel out of the ceiling. The youth minister come in on a motorcycle. You, you, you can't miss it. Well, what we do in church is the most important thing, but it's not the most entertaining. Uh, we have three things to offer that nobody else in the world can offer. We offer the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. We offer hope of life, life everlasting through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we offer a purpose for every day in following Jesus Christ. But if all people are interested in is entertainment, they're going to be like this man who said, I've got five yoke of oxen. I can't come. And then one other guy gives a family excuse. In verse 20, another said, I just got married, so I can't come. I can understand this one a little bit. How many of you men, if your wife said, I'm not going and you're not going either, would show up? You know, the Bible says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? We've all seen a wrong marriage or a wrong dating relationship become a barrier to participation in the kingdom of God. And I, I would say to young people here and to people who are widowed or divorced, don't be careless in dating somebody who is not a Christian. I hear about uh, flirt to convert <laughs> or missionary dating. But the problem is that instead of you influencing them, they eventually 
drag you down. Charles Swindoll used to say, if you have on white gloves and you work in the mud, the mud never gets glovey. And if you decide you're going to be yoked together with somebody who doesn't share your faith, chances are they're going to drag you down and you'll be like this guy in a parable. I can't come because my family's kind of a barrier, you know. Well, while this shallow excuse disappointed the host, he gives a new commission to his servants. Verse 21, he orders the servants, go out quickly in the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame and make them come in so that my house will be full. Now, the meaning of this parable is very clear. We are the servants, and we are challenged to continue to go out and recruit with a sense of urgency, even though many in the world are hostile toward the invitation. It's God's will that this house be filled every week. And as long as there's one person within a 15-mile radius of this church or within the circumference of your influence who does not know Jesus Christ, and as long as there's one seat in this house that is empty, your job isn't complete. It's God's will that his house be full. In Acts 16, 15, we read, So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Growing in numbers and growing in the faith, deepening in the church, evangelism and discipleship go hand in hand. Now, here's what I want to talk about before we end. I don't think most of us are doing a very good job at being recruiters. A guy by the name of Mont Smith, professor of New Testament at Hope International University in California. He did his doctorate nearby Fuller Seminary on evangelism. He did some interesting surveys. He asked people, how did you become a Christian? And he found out, even in this age we talk about attractional churches versus missional churches, that the vast majority of people became Christian because somebody who was a friend invited them to come to church and they came to church, they, they felt comfortable, they kept coming, they heard the gospel, and eventually they responded. Gone are the days when we could knock on somebody's door and say, when you, if you die tonight, where do you think you'll go? And we can win them on the spot. It, it is the result of a relationship. But from Los Angeles to Manhattan, most people become Christian because somebody who knows them invites them to come to church. But here's the interesting part of his survey. He asked, who invited you to church? Discovered that over 33% were invited to go to church by somebody who was a Christian for less than a year. And then the percentages declined. Here's the disturbing statistic. Fewer than 2% of people are invited to church by somebody who has been a Christian for more than six years. Now, we can rationalize that and say, well, the new Christian has more worldly contacts, the new Christian has more enthusiasm, the new Christian hasn't been rebuffed the way the rest of us are. But what happens to us, the longer we're Christian, the less evangelistic, the less we're concerned about missions. We think we graduate beyond it. And we learn to spiritually isolate ourselves and insulate ourselves against the world. We associate every day with people in the world, we rub shoulders, but we avoid those subjects that are a little bit prickly. We can talk about restaurants and we can talk about uh, movies and we can talk about our grandkids so nobody wants to hear about that. We don't hesitate to talk about those things. But we don't talk about spiritual matters. We gravitate back to our Christian friends when then we can talk about cultural issues and values and church. And as a result, the world goes to hell and, and we don't invite anybody. So I want to give you three challenges since this is Missional Sunday. Number one, be generous with missionaries who are called to take the gospel to the rest of the world. 
Most of us are not called to go to Kenya or China. The Bible compares the church to a body. Each member has a distinct contribution to make. We're not all hands and eyes. But there are unseen parts of the body that are vital to our existence. Without the lungs breathing every minute the body dies. And in the church, without people of resource, week by week, giving to the church, nobody sees, but they are the lifeline of people who can go. And I understand in this church, every offering you give, 20% of that goes to missions. That is really, really commendable. So give generously to support missionaries. But let me suggest beyond that, you get to know one or two missionaries, and you occasionally send them additional check, money to encourage them. And it'll be a boost to them. And you'll feel better, more identified with that mission going out to recruit people who don't know the Lord. Jesus said in Luke 16, verse 9, Use worldly wealth to make friends of yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. He didn't say, hoard up your earthly wealth. Then when you die, will it to some mission. He says, while you're living, you use your worldly wealth. And then when it's gone, when the last check bounces, you're ready to go to heaven. And you make friends of yourselves. I'll tell you what, you, you write a check to missionaries over and above what you give on Sunday morning, you'll make friends of yourselves. They'll contact you. They'll send emails. They'll ask you for more. And, and you'll, you'll make friends of yourself. Here's the second challenge. And that is, consider going on a short-term mission trip yourself, even if it gets you out of your comfort zone. In the previous paragraph to the parable we just studied, Luke 14, verse 12, Jesus said, When you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, or your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus is saying, get out of your comfort zone. When I say invite somebody to come to church, don't say, I'm going to go to my neighbor across the street goes to Baptist church. You, you come to my church, I'll go to yours. No. You find people who are totally lost and you befriend them. Or, better still, you get out of the United States of America and you take a short-term mission trip that will get you out of your comfort zone and it will expand your vision of evangelism. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like going on mission trips. I'm a homebody and I don't like eating food when I don't know what's in it, <laughs> sleeping in beds when I don't know what's in it, and when I go on a mission trip, I'm counting the days till I go back home. But I like what mission trips do for me. Folks, there is something about going to a third world country and seeing people who have nothing to eat but a bowl of rice come to church all smiles just praising God for his goodness. It humbles you. There's something about getting away from the protection of the United States of America and have to depend more on God that makes you of greater faith. So I have been to Cuba and the Dominican Republic and Poland twice and Kenya and India and Korea twice and China. And every time I go, when I come back, I'm... Is this a renewal filling of the... I, I was in India and got sick and wound up in an Indian hospital for a week. That's not what you volunteer for. But the people of our church will tell you, Bob, I've never seen you so filled with the Holy Spirit as you were that year you came back from being in the hospital in India. So I'll challenge you. You want to deepen your concern for missions? 
You want to encourage those you're helping to send? You go on a short-term mission trip. It'll change you. Here's the last part of this challenge. Focus on witnessing to at least one lost person and find ways to compel them to come in so that God's house might be full. I'm going to suggest, though I don't know most of you, I'm going to suggest there are a lot of you in this room who have not so much as invited a person to come to church for the last 10 years. And I, I, I want to challenge you to change that. To, to, to focus on somebody you know and don't give up on them. And you find some way to get closer to them and then when you invite them to come to church they'll be more likely to respond and hear the gospel. Sometimes we have to earn the right to be heard. My wife, Judy, became a Christian when she was 10 years old, but she is, that's probably 20 years ago, but she, <laughs> she's more evangelistic now in our stage of life than ever. She gets a manicure uh, every week from a woman who immigrated to America from Russia, and she's sitting across the table from this girl half hour, and they struck up a friendship. She's learned to weed through her accent. And eventually she invited her to come to our church's Easter pageant. And she came. Then she brought her husband and her brother-in-law and his wife. And then Judy asked her to come to our house for a meal. And she and her husband came. And they invited us to go to their house for a Russian meal. And finally Judy asked her to do a Bible study. And she said, I grew up in Russia. I am a whiteboard. I know nothing. And Judy is so excited every week as she's doing this Bible study with Gala, and she will give me a report. And when Gala comes with her to church, Judy's attitude at church is so much more eager because she got a person sitting beside her who doesn't know the Lord. Still, at our age, she's going out in the highways and byways and trying to compel them to come in. My son Rusty preaches at a church in Port Charlotte, Florida. And I, when I visited down there last year, I couldn't get over how many football players and football coaches he has in his audience when... Uh, and he's involved in the football program, local school, 2,000 kids. I said, Rusty, how, how did you get so involved in the football program? This year he's an assistant coach. They made him uh, assistant coach in charge of player development. I said, how did that happen? You didn't play a day of football in your life. He said, it was easy, Dad. I just went to the coach and asked, how can I help you? And he gave me a list of things, and we found out that the coach was laundering all the uniforms himself all day every Saturday. So we said, we'll take that load off you. So after every game, we go in, we pick up all the uniforms, we bring them, put them in the entryway of our house, fumigates the whole house, but some volunteers <laughs> from, from other volunteers from the church come, we share it, and then Monday we take the uniforms back. He told me this at a football game, he said, come on, Dad, help me. So I go in the locker room after the game, and I'm picking up these dirty, smelly, wet uniforms. I'm a preacher of a mega church. I'm out there picking up these <laughs> uniforms, put them in a heavy sack, lugging them to the car, 200 yards away. We come back for the second load and uh, the head coach walks by the door and says, thanks Pastor Rusty. See you in church next Sunday. It's amazing how people will listen to you if you wash your feet or wash uniforms. And I want to challenge you. There's got to be some relative. Somebody you go to school with. Somebody you work with totally lost. You start praying for them. You start serving them, befriending them. See if there's some way maybe they'll come to church with you and who knows the consequences. I want to close by telling you about the nicest 
Christmas present I've got for the last decade. I got an email asking my wife and me to come to a Christmas brunch. And I barely recognized the name from like 35 years ago. But I looked at the calendar. I said, Judy, we don't have anything to do. Let's go. So we walked up, nice house, rang the doorbell, host met us, introduced to his wife, introduced us to his two sisters and their husbands, and 19 kids running around this, all cousins, all dressed up, all on a sugar high. They were just so excited about being there. It was obvious this is an annual family celebration, and Judy and I couldn't figure out why we're there. We're the only non-family members there. Finally, they said, okay, time to eat, come to the family room, and Middle sister, Carolyn, stood up and said, Now, Bob and Judy, you're probably wondering why you're here. We want you to sit in these two chairs before we eat. We've got something we want to tell you. We want to tell you thank, thank you for preaching the gospel years ago and tell you about the difference that's made in our family. You see, my, my name is Carolyn uh, Border, and this is my husband, Barry. And, uh, but when, when I... When I was in high school, my parents were going through a terrible divorce. We did not go to church. We were just heart sick. And an older woman in the church invited me to go to church with her. And I came, and I heard the gospel, and it was like food for a starving soul. And I gave my life to Christ. And when I was baptized, it was like a 10-ton load off my shoulder. It was spectacular. And so I, I married this Christian guy, Barry, and we served as missionaries in Africa for a while, but now he's a preacher at a Baptist church in West, uh, in West Central Indiana. And these are our seven kids, one more on the way. Then her sister stood up and said, well, when, when Carolyn was in uh, high school, I was in college. My name was Diane Martis at the time, and, and uh, she invited me to come to church, and I was living a wild, duplicitous life in, in college. But I came to church, and she quoted the scripture she heard me preach on that day, and she said it really convicted me. I gave my life to Christ. I got involved in church. I married Mark Shreve, and we spent seven years in Papua New Guinea translating the Bible into a language where they had no Bible. And these are our six kids, and one more on the way. Then the brother stood up and said, well, I'm the younger brother, Michael. They invited me to come to church. I came. I gave my life to Christ. This is my godly wife, Ani. And uh, she homeschools our four children. But I am the dean of students at the University of Louisville, and I'm trying to take the gospel into a really dark intellectual place. You need to pray for me. But uh, we just want to thank you for preaching the gospel, tell you the difference it's made in our life. Then one by one, the kids who are old enough would stand up and say, my name is Peter, I was baptized on. My name is John, I was baptized on. My name is Elizabeth, I was baptized on. My name is Mary, I was baptized Every one of these kids had Bible names, except three, and those three were adopted, and they had Bible character. The last one said, my name is Andrew, and I am a student in Bible college, I'm going to be a preacher. And then they passed around a song sheet, and everybody in the family sang three stanzas of, to God be the glory, great things he has done. And I couldn't stop weeping because that was our theme song in church. We sang it every Sunday when the Martises first started coming to church. And when I went to the car, I said to my wife, Judy, somebody listen. But all of that started because one middle-aged woman saw a teenage girl who didn't know the Lord and cared and said, would you come to church with me? Papua New Guinea. Africa, West Central Indiana, Louisville, Kentucky, University of Louisville campus, all because of one invitation. I wonder, 30 years from now, 
who's going to be sitting in these seats, how many people will be impacted if you decide to go to somebody and say, all things are ready, come to the feast. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great church, for the spirit that's here, for the leadership that's here, for Dave and Rob and this staff, for the, for the banquet they come to every week. Help them not to be selfish with it. Just as Jesus left the comfort of heaven and came to earth, help us to get out of our comfort zone, support missionaries and give, go visit them, and then become missionaries ourselves to the circle of influence that you've given us every day. And would you see to it, Lord, that there's fruit for our labor. We pray in Christ's name.